0: was a small child, I suffered from night terrors. I'd wake up my parents with gut-wrenching screams, trembling all over, staring into my open closet with a conviction that made my mother's blood run cold. She would calm me down by praying, and after the sobs had died and the tears had dried, I would eventually return to sleep, only to repeat the process the next night. She says of that time that the look of horror on my face Convinced her of some dread that must be plaguing my nightmares, some dread that neither of us can really recall exactly. I grew up hearing strange things. My aunt who saw the devil playing with her shoes, and Uncle alone on an old waterbed, awoke to hear a woman humming softly, and running her hands through his thinning hair. He blamed it on our D&D games. We blamed it on his brand of beer. My father used to hear footsteps on the kitchen tile in the middle of the night, but never found anything or anyone amiss upon investigation. I assume all families have stories of strange things, things not impossible but incomprehensible and in some cases, terrifying. At the age of 24, I began work at a third shift bakery next to a 6 foot 2, 280 pound eccentric academic that insisted on being called the fat man. Below his bespectacled face, he wore a trimmed mustache and a perpetual sly grin that made you think he was always up to something. He would fill his nights with strange songs and a boyish giggle that would reverberate through his entire body. When listening, he would cock his head as if hearing for a bird's call. He would promptly register what it was you were saying and almost never forget it no matter how mundane. He told also of strange things, into the wee hours of the morning we shared the works of Lovecraft, of Poe, Blighty, among others. He spoke of writers and names I had never heard before. He talked of a man who wore a priest's cassock in public, rumored to have practiced pedestry, and believed wholeheartedly in vampires, werewolves, and witches. He styled himself the Reverend Alphonsus Joseph Mary Augustus Montague Summers, but he is known more simply today as Montague Summers. Montague Summers was born the youngest of seven children of a rich banker in Clifton, Bristol. Strange and eccentric, possessed of a voracious intellect and insatiable curiosity, He was raised a Plymouth Brethren, an austere Christian sect that many listeners may note also produced the infamous Aleister Crowley. Sometime after leaving Trinity College in Oxford, Summers converted to Anglo-Catholicism and began to pursue a religious career, becoming a deacon and serving churches in Bath and Bristol. Owing to a scandal and to his growing interest in the occult. Summers was never considered for higher orders, and soon after left the Anglican Church for Roman Catholicism, after which the story gets a little murky. According to Summers, he was ordained a priest in a small diocese in Italy, though which diocese and where remains a mystery. No formal documentation proving that he was ever ordained has been produced. It was during this time, before becoming Anglican, that a curious story emerges which would have an immense impact on Summers' life. While in Belgium, Summers attended a black mass. What he saw there, though he never told, propelled him into holy orders, and into his scholarly works that would define his career. Dressing in a black cassock and a black shovelled hat, which covered his long graying hair, with buckled shoes, he would often don a cape in the manner befitting a priest from a century before, and haunt the streets of Oxford with a silver topped cane, depicting Leda in the form of a swan, being ravished by Zeus. Friends say he was often seen in the street with either a black dog or a young boy in tow, but neither both, indicating it was as familiar. Other times he could be seen leaving the British Museum reading room with a black portfolio, with the legend vampires written in blood red upon it. He seemed a man plucked from a different age. His high-pitched voice and perpetual smile did not seem to fit his rounded and morose face, which often hid his outrageous wit. His friends wondered out loud if he himself was in league with the devil and if the reason he knew so much about the Black Mass was because he performed it. Characteristic of Summers, he did little to assuage their curiosity and seemed to delight in the impropriety of the notion. Though he first gained notoriety for his work in the restoration of 17th century English drama and later for his scholarly work on the Gothic novel, it was his publication in 1926 of the history of witchcraft and demonology, for which he is largely remembered today. Followed shortly after by the geography of witchcraft in 1927, he would go on to translate the Malphicorum Malficorum or Witch Hammer, a 15th century text on hunting witches, as well as the discovery of witches by the infamous Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins. A subject long neglected by historians as an embarrassing side note of the Middle Ages, Summers not only wrote prolifically about the historical cases of witchcraft, he wholeheartedly believed every word of it, a fact that soon became clear to his readers, which he was largely ridiculed for. He went on to write several other books about vampires, one about werewolves, and one about the physical phenomena of mysticism. His writings on the subject of vampires gives the modern reader a reliable insight into the mind of someone who truly and deeply believed in such terrible creatures. Say what the skeptic might, if Summers could not convince you of the existence of the preternatural, he could easily convince you of what it was like to believe, as our ancestors did, and some moderns do today, in the strange and the unexplainable. He viewed himself as a refugee from the 18th century espousing belief in vampires not as antiquated superstition but as a terrifying reality. Witches not as harmless victims of hysteria and delusion but as individuals in league with Satan. In many respects Summers played the classic witch hunter to Aleister Crowley's public and often comical portrayal of the modern-day witch. In a strange twist of history Summers and Crawley would meet while both living in the town of Richmond and greatly admired each other, despite their radically different stands on the occult. His style of writing about the occult often calls back to an age that even then viewed the witch and the vampire with skepticism, the age of reason, which saw the vampire panic that drew the attention of writers like Voltaire. Summers took the view, often of his subjects, the witch finder general, condemning the evil found around him, and purifying the community with a cleansing fire. Or that of the common peasant, who told and dwelt with the strange things far from the halls of power in the small towns and villages of Europe, places where the dead rose to drink the blood of the living, where men turned into beasts and feasted on their neighbor's flesh, where witches preyed upon townsfolk, specters troubled their dreams, and black dogs covered their path a world in which fairies lived in the trees and the hills and were to be feared and respected. The living nightmares historians often label as folklore and superstition were to these men and women a horrifying reality. Yet in this reality, Summers found a kind of poetic beauty to be searched after or even admired, writing, He imagined and elaborated a medievalism for himself, he created a fresh world, a world which never was and never could have been, a domain which fancy built and fancy ruled. And in this land there will be mystery, because where there is mystery, beauty may always lie hid. There will be wonder, because wonder always lurks where there is the unknown. And it is this longing for beauty intermingled with wonder and mystery that will express itself, perhaps exquisitely and passionately. In the twilight moods of the romantic poets perhaps a little crudely and even a little vulgarly in the tales of horror and blood more important to his work than his views however was the primary documents somers produced to back up his work showing the movement of history from the small towns of england reverberating into the halls of power he cites the trial torture, and execution of Gellis Duncan in 1590. This trial caught the attention of King James I of Scotland, who took an interest out of personal preservation, believing that he would be a victim of assassination by witchcraft. He went so far as to personally interview one of the fellow women Duncan accused. What is of note though is not all of King James' suspicions were pure paranoia, as it was found that his cousin, Francis Stewart had placed a curse on the king with the help of the devil himself. His curse and subsequent uprising would fail, and in the aftermath, King James of Scotland would become King James of England, and produce the King James Bible, as well as another little-known book, which Summers took great delight in, Demonology. But for Summers, a man already ill-fit for the 20th century, he seemed to disintegrate at the splitting of the atom. As the bombs rained down on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Iron Curtain fell across Europe, Summer's countrymen and most of the old world he inhabited, horrified by the monstrosities of the modern age and pummeled by the intellectual philosophy of the new religion, modernity, began to abandon the faith he held so dear. To him, faith like the monsters he espoused, was a real, tangible thing. It lurked, sometimes out of reach, often unseen, in the hearts of all men, in all ages. And for his fidelity to faith, he was largely abandoned and ignored. His final works reflect his intellectual decline, often reworking whole tracts of earlier masterpieces into new books under a different title. He was criticized for lack of discernment in his sources taking little to no time to filter different accounts into his work. Today he is often thought of, if remembered at all, as an eccentric academic with shaky clerical credentials, and so often a heckle is raised to his espousing of the reality of witches. However, if you were to open the history of witchcraft and demonology, we find this curious opening passage. In the following pages I have endeavored to show the witch as she really was. An evil liver, a social pest and parasite, a devotee of a lowly and obscene creed, an adept at poisoning, blackmail, and other creeping crimes, a member of a powerful secret organization inimical to the church and state, a blasphemer in word and deed, swaying the villagers by terror and superstition, a charlatan and a quack sometimes, a bawd and abortionist, the dark counselor of lewd court ladies and adulterous gallants. A minister device vice and inconceivable corruption. Battening upon the filth and the foulest passions of the age. When defined in so broad a manner, one might be tempted to say that though they may not kill babies and drink their blood, or use their fat to ride around on brooms, Under this definition, the modern age has produced many a witch and warlock. Indeed, the very things that Summers demonized as evil, the very things that defined the philosophy of the witch, became the social and political fashion of the day. No longer did men and women need to sell their souls to the devil. Society had done it for them. Montague Summers died August 10, 1948, at his home in Richmond, at the age of 68. Much of his work, as well as his name, faded into obscurity. Unlike his contemporary, Aleister Crowley, Summers had no one dedicated to the publication of his works for posterity. His papers soon became lost, his autobiography remained incomplete. His grave was left unmarked for nearly 40 years before the summer's project finally gathered enough donations to erect a headstone. On it was etched a phrase he had often uttered to people upon their first meeting. Tell me strange things. From the beginnings of a frightened child alone at night, I would have never imagined how deep the rabbit hole goes. Nor how dark it gets. The fat man's pernicious grin No longer lightens up my nights at the old bakery. His eccentric songs no longer fill the air around me. The strange stories once told by relatives and friends Said in the half-whispers on nights when the moon dared not shine Have now become mine own. Nowadays, when that dark specter sallies forth from my blackened closet I can no longer call to my mother, who would not come running anymore anyway, neither to my wife, who would likely have me institutionalized. I call out to the only mother who might still listen, as summers must have, Mary full of grace, a prayer half remembered in the hopes that divine grace may save me from what science cannot. My name is Matthew William Motsinger. And this is Devilry. I've spent the better part of the last decade studying the strange things that go bump in the night. From psychology to occult studies, FBI reports, history, folklore, and superstition. In the coming episodes, we would take an in-depth look at Jungian psychology, explore the satanic ritual abuse of the 1980s, delve into vampire cults in Poland, Explore the connection between the skinwalkers of the American Indians with French reports of werewolves in the old world and the new. The well of exploration is endless, a subject matter daunting. My aim, to follow in the footsteps of the legendary reverend, Alibet, with a different platform. To shine a light on the monsters around us, among us, and in us. Devilry is a bi-weekly podcast that is written and produced by me, Matthew William Motsinger. Music by Kevin McLeod. Photos by Jordan Connor and Ian Espinosa. If you enjoy listening to Devilry and would like to support us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. If you'd like to make a donation, you can go to devilrypodcast.com forward slash support. Support of any kind is greatly appreciated.